Apple. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, that it was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, the boastful pride of life. She took its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Last week, we talked about this very story. We pointed out that another writer in the New Testament, in the first John, had a passage about loving the world and how we're not supposed to love the world. Because when we love the world, it's filled with the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And then we ask this question. How are we not going to mess up heaven too? That's what we talked about two weeks ago. Are we not going to mess up heaven too? The new heavens, new earth. Because back then, it was perfect conditions. There was peace with God, peace with each other, peace, shalom with the earth. But yet, Adam and Eve chose the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. We also talked about last week, not last week, two weeks ago, that God is motivated by love. That God's response to Adam and Eve was amazing, it was beautiful. Yes, there was judgments. Yes, there were consequences. But he showed his amazing grace. He shows it over and over again in the Old Testament. We looked at a few stories last time about this. Showing that God's amazing love, Yahweh's amazing love motivates him in everything that he does. But we didn't really answer the question. Are we going to mess up heaven So I'd like to address that today. I want to start by talking about last fall. Just personal story. Last fall, in September, um, at the end of September, my role as an elder here came to an end. My term as an elder here came to an end. And on October 1st, I wasn't an elder. I uh, wasn't on the worship team. I I didn't, I had no responsibilities here at church. And that was significant in my life because 
I've had something, at least since like 1998, I've had some role, some, something here. And for the first time in many years, nothing. And I wrote Paul an email. And I said, Paul, I have the feeling that what I need to do is just stop all leadership involvement and just make sure that my heart is aligned in doing this for the right reasons. I need to do some heart work. Because I know this about myself and I know this about ministry or actually any role that when you do it for a long time, it can get tied into your identity. It can get tied into your self-worth. You start to, you know, kind of get impressed with yourself. The pride of life. You start to have a little bit of pride in what you're doing. It doesn't happen just in ministry, but it, for me it did. And there was things about, like, why I was doing elder board and why I was in the worship team and why I was doing all this stuff that, I have to be honest, was driven and motivated by some pride. And even this, like even preaching, like, I've, like part of this is I love to do it. I feel like there's a, there, there's a passion for it. But you can easily fall into this place of like, I am so impressed with myself. So I knew I needed to step back. Because I've seen many pastors and leaders around us fall for the very reasons, the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes the pride of life. Very, very godly men who have had an incredible influence in our world fall. In October of last year, uh, I had this verse come to mind. And I want to share this with you. I've been looking forward to sharing this with you for months. And the verse is this. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, this verse has always puzzled me a bit because it's an interesting contrast. It's contrasting two good things. Sacrifice is a really good thing. We, we praise and celebrate people who sacrifice, and we praise mercy. But this is Jesus' words, and he's saying this. He's quoting Hosea 6.6. 6. This is in, from the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's saying, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And as I reflected more on this verse, it became clear what this means. That we can sacrifice like crazy as human beings. We sacrifice all the time. We sacrifice our time, our money, our resources, our reputation. We sacrifice our relationships for all sorts of reasons. Sacrifice, God isn't impressed by our ability to sacrifice. We can do that all day long. What he cares about is what's behind it. Why are you sacrificing? God sees right through the veneer. He sees right through the actions. He sees right through all of our righteous, amazing acts. And he goes, I don't want your sacrifice. What I desire is mercy. I desire mercy. Or, I want to put it this way, just change one word here. I desire elios, the Greek word for mercy. The reason why I want to point out that word is because in Ephesians 2, it says this amazing passage. But God, being rich in elios, mercy. Why was he rich in elios? Because of the great agape 
with which he agaped us. God's motivation to love us, his motivation of agape, results in great mercy. Mercy that we saw two weeks ago in Genesis 1 through 11. Mercy that we saw in the torch coming down, walking through the pieces, taking both sides of the covenant. What God wants is a heart of agape, a heart motivated by agape that results in great mercy that then leads to sacrifice. That's what he cares about. Being motivated by agape, resulting in great mercy and leading to sacrifice. James 2, 26 says this, faith without works is dead. You've probably heard this passage, this verse before. It's one that's debated the nominal passage. Also, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not agape, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. You could say it this way. Yeah, faith without works is dead. And works without agape is just noise. It's just noise. Elsewhere, Paul says it's nothing. It's nothing. So God wants us to be motivated by love. Motivated by agape. Just like he is motivated by love. By agape. John 17. So I want to turn to this amazing passage uh, where Jesus is praying to his Father. And this is a very important passage because this is revealing Jesus' heart. To hear Jesus pray and to hear what he would pray about. This is what he prays about. There's a lot in here. He says this. The glory which you've given me, I also have given to them. He's talking to his father. You've given me glory and I've given to them. Them is us in these passages. So that they may be one, just like we are one. Jesus wants us to be in unity with him. I and them and you and me, that they, us, may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and that you agape them just as you agape me. Jesus wants to pull us all in to the unity that he's experiencing with the Father, pull us all in to the same agape love that he's experiencing with the Father. He goes on. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given to me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you agape me before the foundation of the world. What Jesus Jesus is talking about here is this Trinitarian community of agape love. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and centered in between it, is this amazing unity of agape love. And Jesus wants us a part of that love, to experience that same love, that same unity. A unity that's been intact since the beginning. A unity that the Trinity has not become corrupt with power, has not fallen apart, has not lost its integrity. It's the only community that has stayed permanently intact, surrounding agape. And the glue that holds it all together is agape. Jesus continues on. He says, Righteous Father, 
Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these things, and these have made, and these have known that you sent me. These being us. And I have made your name known to them, us, and will make it known, so that the agape with which you agaped me may be in them and I in them. The bottom line, big prayer that Jesus has for us is that the same agape love that motivates God would be in us. That we would be motivated by God. So the question, are we going to mess up heaven too? We won't if we are 100% motivated by pure agape, just like God. If, if we have that same level of agape love among us, like the Trinity does, that is how heaven and the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21, that's how this all stays together. It's walking away from the lust of the flesh and the eyes and the boastful pride of life and choosing to be motivated by agape love. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you agape one another, just as I have agaped you. You are also to agape one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have agape for one another. I think it's really interesting for to, to notice that um, we, we often read this passage, love one another, love, 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 and I've flipped the words to agape because there are many words for love in the Bible. And it's, it's important to, to call out that Jesus is talking about a very specific type of love, agape. You see, agape is one that is called out in the Bible as better than the other loves, like phileo or storge or eros. Phileo is like this, you know, friendship kind of love. It's like you have good chemistry, you're good friends. Storge is kind of this affection, like, oh, what a cute puppy, I love this puppy. That's like this storge kind of love, right? It's fleeting, though. Both phileo and storge, it's, it's good, but it's fleeting. It's, it's, it can often come and go. Eros, the sexual kind of love, passionate love between two. And these, this is also fleeting. Very passionate, very powerful, very beautiful, designed by God. But agape is greater than all three. Um, there is an individual who was saved in this church in, uh, in the 90s, in our youth group here at Chapel Hill. Saved here, you know, was discipled here at Chapel Hill. And then he went on to become a professor at Bethel. And then now he's a pastor at Greg Boyd's church in Woodland Hills Church um, in St. Paul. And he recently wrote a book called Confident Humility. And uh, he's got this great passage on what agape is. His name is Dan Kent. And uh, um, I want to read, read to you part of what he says about agape. This is really cool because this, this is from, this is like from fruit from our church, right? This is like really cool. So this is what Dan says. These loves, that's the phileo, uh, um, storge, eros. These loves are each emotion-based and reactive. They happen to us in various degrees, but agape is the opposite. It's neither reactionary nor compelled by emotion. Agape is proactive. We choose it. It exists because we call it into existence, not as an automatic reaction or as the result of circumstantial correlation. In fact, we may not even really like the person we've chosen to agape. 
And since it exists purely for my choice and not on the merits of the other, it is the purest of all loves. Is that not true? When we see someone love someone else, when they don't deserve it, it moves us. It's agape love. Agape can result in emotions, but is fundamentally, it's emotionless. It does not swell or deflate and deflate like emotional loves always do. Agape is not sentimental. In fact, it has very little to do with our inner experiences at all. Rather, when we have agape for another, it's for the sake of that other. Thus, agape is an other-oriented love. And the truth is, storge, that kind of, oh, what a cute puppy, that kind of affection, will never fulfill us. It will never meet our deepest need for acceptance. Phileo, that friendship love without agape, is fickle. Because why? Friends change. Their interests change. We may lose common ground with them.